That was pretty fun, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, our, our staff made that, by the way. Um, our creative team put that together, our tech team. So th- I, isn't that impressive? You guys don't seem impressed. I think that's really impressive. I couldn't do that. And let's just put it this way. If you think you can do better, then I'd like to see it next week. We'll, we'll show it if you think you can do better. Um, by the way, again, if you're, if you're um, at home and you're a regular live streamer, you're not normally here, um, we want you to see that. You should be able to see that on your TV or your device. You can go to stjstl.net slash 3D. We have a form there for you. If you do that today, we'll make sure you got some 3D glasses by uh, next weekend so that you can watch that at home. We want you to be fully involved in all of that. Now, today we begin, by the way, I'm Dion. Uh, today we begin a, uh, a new series called Standouts. And I know that's a good title because I've already gotten some pushback on it from people. Um, Already some of us have bristled under that title thinking, standouts? That doesn't sound very Christian. You know, when we think of standouts, maybe you think of people in the Olympics right now. You think of people like uh, Chloe Kim or Red Gerard. I think we've got their pictures here. Um, I don't know if you've been watching snowboarding. It's crazy. I don't know how people ever learn to do this stuff. Um, but these two people, both gold medalists, Chloe Kim did something that a woman has never done in snowboarding, like back-to-back 1080s plus something else, Red Gerard. And here's what's crazy. Both of these uh, gold medalists from the U.S., 17 years old. You know, standouts, that's what we think of when we think of uh, standouts, people like that. Now, I don't even want to tell you what I was doing at 17. Um, although if like mailbox smashing or something was an Olympic event, I might have gotten a bronze. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is what we think. We think standouts, yeah, that's, that's these kind of people. That's not us as Christians. Christians are supposed to be modest and humble and meek. And yes, that's all true. But we're also called to stand out. And uh, the Bible is so clear. Jesus is so clear on this. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying shine. He's telling us to stand out. Paul says the same thing or a similar thing. It's kind of our theme verse for the series. He starts off this way. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. I love this part. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Like I said, that's our theme verse. As you hold firmly to the word of life. What's Paul saying? He's saying to shine. He's telling us to stand out. Now, sometimes as Christians, when we, when we hear this message to shine or to stand out, we get the wrong idea and we stand out in all the wrong ways. We think it means to do this. This is what it means to stand out, to take our stand or to make a stand and, and to dig our heels in. But this is not it. This is not what Jesus had in mind. This is not what Paul had in mind when he urged us to shine, when, when they told us to stand out. It's, it's not the picture at all. And through this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the picture of what it really means for us to be standouts in the way that Jesus was a standout. And as we begin this series, um, the first thing we're going to look at is one of the ways that Jesus was most distinct in how he stood out. We're, we're going to look at, at the way he lived out and demonstrated the value, the, the behavior of unconditional acceptance. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, a couple of years ago, we did focus group research in our community because we wanted to understand from our community, um, specifically those who don't go to church, we wanted to understand more about why they don't go to church. 
And, uh, you know, that's part of our mission, right? Not just to gather other Christians, but to actually connect with people who, who aren't going to church. So we gathered together focus groups of unchurched and dechurched people, and uh, we wanted to do a couple things. We wanted to understand, so what are the barriers that keep you from going to church? And all these people lived in our ministry area, and they were all, they all expressed an openness to attending church, although they don't currently attend one. Um, and so we, you know, we wanted to know, what are the barriers, what are the things that stand in the way? of you attending church. And uh, what, are some, what are some things that can maybe motivate you to give church a chance? And then the other thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to find out, so what do you know about St. John as a church? We wanted to better understand what our reputation um, was in our community. And I'm so glad we did the research. We learned so much about it, and I've written about it and talked about it, and it's informed so much. Um, but, but here's one of the things that we learned. We learned that as a church, we don't stand out very well. Uh, and in the ways we do stand out, they're, they're pretty superficial or they're kind of outdated. For instance, in these focus groups, we learned that uh, what people know of us is that we're the church that ties up traffic sometimes on Manchester Road. <laughs> You're like, okay, that's, that's great. Um, a lot of them said that we have a really big campus. They knew that. Um, some knew that we had a school. That was a good thing. Um, some people uh, thought that, that we must be Catholic. They just assumed that we're Catholic. Um, one person in our focus group said, oh yeah, yeah, that's the church with the really red carpet. And of course, I just loved hearing that. And I'm like, come back now, no red carpet, unless you're in the balcony, there's still some up there, I think. But, um, but you know, I, th- those, were, those were the things they knew about us. And so we came away going, man, we, th- those aren't the things we want to be known for. I don't think that's what it means to stand out. The church that ties up traffic or has really red carpet or... It was just kind of fuzzy for them who we, who we are. We thought, man, we, we have to address that. Uh, but but in, in addition to that, and, and I really love this, we got to learn more about what is it that keeps these people distant from, from the church. Not just our church, but from church as a whole. And uh, we learned a lot, but one of the refrains that we kept hearing over and over and over again from people in our community was essentially this. They said, you know what? The world is so divided, and people, people don't get along, and no one can talk to each other, and in politics you see it, and you see it in neighborhoods, and there's all this tribalism going on in our world. And they said the church should be the one place, the church should be the one place where all different kinds of people can come together where people are welcome no matter what, what their background is or, or what they believe or where they are. The church should be one place, the one place in all the world where people can come together and they can find unconditional acceptance. And they said, you know, if there was a church that offered this, we'd consider going. Now, unconditional acceptance, this, the church should be the one place where you find this. Do you agree with that? See, I'm not sure that we all do, because I think in recent days we've, we've come to believe that this is a cultural value, or it's a worldly value, or a secular value, that there are other people in the world talking about unconditional acceptance, but we've come to believe that this is not exactly a Christian value, that Christians aren't about unconditional acceptance. We have to take a stand for truth, and, and we have to, you know, if, if you're willing to do the right things, then you'll be accepted. But today I want to show you that unconditional acceptance is not just something that our community is craving, uh, but it's something, it's, it's a value that originates in the heart and in the ministry of Jesus. And if already you feel like you're kind of struggling with this, going, oh no, Dion, where is this going? You're, you're not going to spew this agenda on me. I, I just want you to relax. This is, this is Jesus-focused stuff, and we're going we're to take our cues from Jesus in this series. 
And so right now, if you've got a Bible or if you want to grab the Bible ahead of you, you can go to Matthew chapter 9, especially if you already know in your spirit, like if you feel some uneasiness about this, I want you to open your Bible because you need to be able to read around and dig around as, as we move through this. Or you can fire up your app on your phone and, and go to Matthew chapter 9, or you can look along um, on the TV here. It's page 973 if you're using a Bible here in the room. Matthew chapter 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there in Uh, Just to give you some context, the from there is just before this, he healed a guy who was paralyzed, um, but he didn't only heal him, he forgave his sins. And in the weird, weird world that he was living in, I mean, the healing got lots of attention and people were like, wow, Jesus healed this paralyzed guy, that's impressive. But the forgiveness that he gave the guy made everybody mad. The religious leaders are like, what does this guy think he's doing? He can't forgive people. Only God can forgive sins. And so while the miracle of healing was impressive, the forgiveness made them angry. No one has a right to forgive anyone else. That's something that only God, only God can do. Uh, and so he goes on from there and he, and he goes to this next thing. It says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, sometimes, sometimes the Bible is so understated Jesus just leaves this one miracle. He goes and he walks by this guy, Matthew. And do you know why Matthew's sitting at a tax collector's booth? Anybody? (laughs) Yeah, trick question. He's a tax collector. That's why he's sitting at the booth. He wasn't minding the store store for a buddy. You know, hey, watch my booth. No, no, he's a a tax collector. And uh, just curious, how many of you are gung-ho on paying taxes? Now, I'll tell you, I don't mind paying taxes. I really don't. Under two conditions. Uh, I don't mind paying taxes if I feel that what I'm paying is fair, that I'm not being gouged, um, and if I believe that what I'm paying, uh, what I'm giving, you know, in my taxes is being put to good use. It's not being squandered. And I think most of us, most reasonable people would say, yeah, yeah, I can support that. But that was the problem with the day that Jesus was living in. Uh, See, the way the taxing system worked, and some of you know this, uh, people like Matthew, tax collectors, they were allowed just to collect revenues for for Rome, and Rome didn't care how they got it, and they could extort from people, they could gouge people, they could take way more than people rightfully had to pay, they could demand taxes, they took a cut off the top, they got rich while the other people in their country suffered, and then, so, you know, it wasn't wasn't fair, and then they took all that revenue and they sent it off to Rome, and Rome got richer, and Israel got poorer, and they were not being represented very well, and so uh, it was not going to good use, it was being squandered, and so people hated paying taxes. Not only did they hate paying taxes, there was this thing in the day that paying taxes was actually immoral, You know, you're supporting the evil empire. And so they hated tax collectors, especially like Matthew, because here Matthew is, he's a Jewish guy and he's working for the bad guys. He is on the wrong side of all of this. And so so get this, get this. Jesus, he walks by Matthew's tax collector booth and Matthew is in the middle of doing his work. And again, it's so understated. Jesus walks by and he tells this guy, this, this tax collector, he says, hey, I want you to come and join me. Come and be a part of my inner circle. What? Now, just imagine for a second what the other disciples must have been feeling in this moment. I mean, they must have thought Jesus had gone off the rails. Because although they weren't cream of the crop kind of people, uh, they weren't well-educated, they were working class kind of people, they were at least respectable, law-abiding, faithful, religiously devoted people. 
And they had left everything to follow Jesus. And, and I'm sure some people in their family looked at them like, are you sure this guy, I mean, you're going to follow this rabbi around? And, they, and they're like, no, 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 I, I think this is right. And they started following Jesus. And, and then here they are this day. Jesus does this great miracle and he's stirring up controversy. And then he just, you know, he's poking the bear. This is, you know, Steve Howard's spiritual gift, poking the bear. Uh, he just walks up and he invites this tax collector to be one of his disciples. And the rest of the disciples have to be going, Jesus, have you lost your mind? This guy? I mean, what are people back home going to think when they know that there is a tax collector now in our inner circle? We're going to be scandalized by this. Our our wives and our children are going to be embarrassed and shamed that we're now inviting tax collectors into this thing. And we're supposed to live life and share meals and sleep in close quarters with, with this guy that we don't even trust, who's betrayed our whole country. We're supposed to embrace him I can't even imagine how just, just like deeply disturbing this was to the disciples. And, and if, you, if you aren't feeling the discomfort right now, one of two things could be happening. Either I'm doing a really bad job explaining it, which could be possible. You can stick around for 1045, see if I do a better job. Or it could be that you are not yet honest with yourself or very honest with yourself about how much you also struggle and worry and, and, and fight with this whole issue of who you associate with and what that means. See, starting in middle school, we, we start to think more intentionally. You know, like when, you, when you're in elementary school, you kind of be friends with anyone. I, I noticed in middle school, suddenly people didn't want to be my friends anymore who were my friends, and I didn't want to be... Like, you start to think about your associations different. They start to mean more to you. And I don't think... Uh, we get more sophisticated, but I don't think we ever really grow out of that. See, we struggle with our associations, and here's why. First, because we're worried about what others will think. We're afraid of what others will think. You know, will people judge me on the basis of people that I keep company with? Will, will those people reflect poorly on me somehow? Or we're afraid of being corrupted. And, and you know, the Bible speaks about this. Proverbs does, First Corinthians does. It says, uh, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And so maybe corrupted is too strong for you, but, but at least negatively influenced. You know, if I, if I allow myself to hang out with people like Matthew, people who have no regard for, for the integrity of Israel, who are willing to steal from people, if, 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 they're, if I'm going to make company with those people, are they going to rub off on me? Am I going to become more like that too? Am I going to become influenced by them negatively? It's, it's a worry that we have. It's, we're, we're afraid of that. Or we're afraid of giving tacit approval to things we don't agree with. This one should be like in yellow or something. I think this is so true for us today. Especially right now in our country, in our country, uh, we've kind of bought into this idea that you can't associate with someone unless you agree with them. Right? And so we all have our our tribes and our groups of people who are like-minded, who agree and who believe the same things. And um, if, if, if someone starts hanging out with people who don't agree with them, it's, it's a very confusing thing for us. And we start to worry. We start to worry and we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. D- does that mean you agree with those people? You're spending time with them. You must agree because for us, to have an association means you must agree. That's the only way you can associate with someone if you fully agree with them. Or even more, we worry, well, what about if, if I make associations with someone I don't agree with, what if they think I agree with them? Their politics, their morality, their, their worldview, their behaviors, their beliefs, their, you know, like, 
if, if I associate with them, is that somehow giving them tacit approval? Is that making them think that I agree with them? We're afraid of that, aren't we? Come on, I know we are. I hear it from us all the time. Or, or finally, we're afraid of giving up moral high ground. See, again, in this country, Christianity is kind of being pushed to the margins in a new worldview. That's not a Christian worldview. is taking center stage, and a lot of us feel threatened by that. And so um, when, when we hear this talk about standing out, we think, man, dig in. Stand your ground. Stand up for what you believe in. That's how we want to take a stand. And if you start associating with people who, who think differently, if you start letting Matthew into the family here, then then pretty soon you're going to lose whatever moral high ground you have. You're just going to give it away and you're going to be pushed more to the margins. Now now look at this list for a second. I mean, tell me this isn't true of you. I mean, even the most mature of us, we still struggle with these questions and some of them rightfully so. These are important questions for us to wrestle with. But but I want you to see this word that's common in all of them, uh, this word afraid. We know that making decisions based on fear is never a good way to make decisions. And we're told over and over in Scripture that the only thing we should be afraid of, the only thing we should fear is God, and not in a like terrified way, but in a respect and awe kind of way. Because if we trust and revere God, then we don't have to worry about anything else. The Bible also says that perfect love casts out fear. And we as Christians, we're loved and we, we should know this. We are loved with a perfect love. So we're the last people on earth who should be afraid. And yet when Matthew comes into the fold of Jesus' disciples, it causes a great disturbance. It causes a lot of fear. People start losing their minds over it. And and again, I think we can understand why. But then they pop an artery when Jesus does what he does next. Take a look at what he does next. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house... So he walks by Matthew, says, follow me. The very next verse, while Jesus, no, go back, sorry. Uh, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, if we can go back to that one, thank you. Uh, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, again, so understated, so understated. See, the very next move of Jesus isn't Matthew, leave your sinful life and leave all that stuff and and come and join the holy tribe and, and we'll show you the way you should live. The very next thing Jesus does is he goes into Matthew's house and he has a meal with him. Now, again, I, I can't expect you to understand how scandalous this is because it doesn't fully make sense to me. But in Hebrew culture, you didn't walk into the house of a sinner. Couldn't even go into the house of a Gentile. Even if they were a good person, you would become unclean. You'll see this throughout the New Testament. And not only did you not go to their house, but you never, ever, ever sat down and shared a meal with someone that you weren't completely in alignment with. See, table fellowship in the ancient world, it wasn't just an assign, a sign of association. You could do business with people out in, the, you know, out in the public place who were kind of scoundrels, maybe you could get away with that. But you didn't sit down and share a meal with just anyone. Because sharing a meal wasn't just a sign of a willingness to associate. You know what sharing a meal means? That's a sign of acceptance. And so Jesus, the very next action, going to Matthew's house, entering his house, and sitting down and sharing a meal with him, is a sign that Jesus has moved beyond just simply associating with Matthew to embracing him, accepting him. Inviting him into community. Does that mean he accepted everything that Matthew did and all of his cheating ways and his messed up politics? And No, of course not. 
But as a person, Jesus, he's accepting Matthew. Again, blowing people's minds. And then to make it worse, the next part of the verse, not only is it Matthew, but many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So you have Jesus entering the house of a sinful man, sitting down and experiencing table fellowship with him, and not just him, but all of his, you know, unrepentant friends. And the religious leaders of the day They see this, and and they're ready to have a field day with it. Um, So the very next verse, you can cue the the Jaws music here. Uh, When the Pharisees saw this, right, they're they're swimming. They like smell blood in the water here. Um, They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, they can't even, right? I mean, they're like, oh my gosh. How can your teacher, a respectable rabbi, or he's trying to play off that he is, how on earth can he justify sitting down at the table with people who are known sinners and tax collectors? You know, in other words, there's no excuse for this behavior. And and through uh, their, their accusation, you know, the list starts up again. This list it's not just an association now, it's acceptance. And, and, and they're going, you know, don't you know what other people will think? This guy's supposed to be respectable and, and what are people going to think about this? And, and aren't you all going to become corrupted? This is bad company. And, and everyone sitting around that table is just going to, they're going to think that taxing people unfairly is right and whatever sinful life they're living in. How, how are you going to keep from them just believing that all they're doing is Okay. How are they ever going to know that they need to repent if you just keep embracing them like this? Like, how, how are they even going to understand that their behavior is destructive if, if, you, if you just sit down and eat with them? And, and you know, further, here we are and, and our culture is being erased by Rome and all this Greek culture is coming in and our religion is, is being stamped out and diluted and, and, and your teacher is giving away all of our moral high ground. Now, if you can't right now just feel the tension in this text, uh, then I'd encourage you to do something right now. Because I, I know we're talking about tax collectors. We're like, okay, whatever. And we're talking about table fellowship. And we're like, all right. I mean, those aren't relevant issues for us. But right now, I want you to think of the group of people, the group of people that your group, your primary group, you know, the people that you hang with, your tribe, your family, your, you know, your company, your whoever, your friend group. I want you to think of the group of people that your group would absolutely freak out, lose their minds if they knew you were hanging out with that other group. If they found out you were at a party last night with this other group, whether it's a different political group or whether it's a a different cultural group or a racial group or whether it's um, people of a different lifestyle or people of a different orientation or whether it's people who who struggle with different kinds of sins or addictions or whether it's whether it's people who've got a criminal record you know like like what's that group for you that that if if suddenly you started hanging out with them your 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 spouse your parents your your kids your you know your peers your neighbors your coworkers they'd look at you as if you've lost your mind or lost your religion who is that group for you? See, see, that's what's going on right now with Jesus. He's associating with people that no one should ever associate with. 
And so the Pharisees are going, your teacher's lost his mind. And the disciples, notice in the text, you'll see it, they don't have an answer for this. The accusations made to the disciples, and the disciples are going, we don't know. This is not how we were raised. We don't understand. They are every bit as caught off balance as, uh, as the Pharisees are. And, and so the gossip swirls, and eventually, uh, thankfully, we get an answer to this, to resolve this tension. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This line right here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that's a direct quote from the prophet Hosea. So Jesus isn't just using his words. He's reminding them of words that God had spoken hundreds of years ago through a, through a known prophet. He's using the authority of the prophets there. And, uh, and, and, and he reminds them of this phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is something God decreed. This is what God wants. He wants mercy, not sacrifice. I think the reality of most of us who are religious people, it's the other way around. We, we like sacrifice more than mercy. And see, sacrifice isn't just, isn't just you know, the, the rituals or the hard things that we do, uh, but sacrifice for us it's, it's, the, it's the rules, it's black and white, it's clear defined lines of what you should and shouldn't do. See, we like sacrifice, we like clarity, we like black and white, we like the rules. But mercy, on the other hand, mercy is messy, isn't it? It is so messy. And I'll just tell you, I prefer sacrifice over, over mercy, because I, I like to stay within the lines. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to make life difficult. I, I like things to be black and white if they at all possibly can. And, and mercy, it's just, it's too scary. It's too confusing. It's too messy. And so I know that, that I like sacrifice more than mercy. But what is God like? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus reminds them of, of what was said, and, and then he goes back to those words about um, the, the, the sick and the doctor and, and all those other things that he said. And, and I think Jesus' words are so spot on, and I, I think his metaphor is so strong. See, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to explain away why he's hanging out with these people and why it's an okay thing. Instead, he says, why wouldn't I be hanging out with these people? I mean, why would I hang out with anyone else? Because it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And, and these are the people I have come for. What is he talking about? He's talking about unconditional acceptance. These are the people I have come for. These are the people I came to embrace. Not those of you who think you have your act together. Because just like God told us, I desire mercy over sacrifice, and I'm going to live my life that way. Now, now, here's what I know. This is kind of an aside, but I think it's important. Here's what I know. I've got to sit down. I haven't sat down today. Um, here's what I know. That I think for a lot of us, um, we, we kind of sense in culture that there is a reluctance, and, and maybe within us too, not just outside of us, but within us, there's this reluctance to identify ourselves as people who are sick. Uh, you know, we, we want to just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm different, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sick. And although I, I will acknowledge and celebrate that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that's what the scriptures teach me about myself, that I'm created specific, unique, unlike anyone else. And there are people who are a lot like me, but I'm still different. I am a unique creation and sitting in this room and on live stream and everywhere else, you are exactly the same. None of us, none of us are the same. Even identical twins are not the same, right? 
And God be praised for that because diversity is beautiful and I want more diversity in my life and in our church and in our world. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that. And I'm also sick. I'm broken. I'm in need of a doctor. It's true. And you know what? There there really shouldn't be any shame in saying that, except I think we've turned this into a very shaming thing, right? We, we tell people they're sick, you know, you're, you're sick, or that was sick, or, you know, like, we, we use that in a shaming way, but, but really, I mean, what does it mean? What is Jesus? His words are so intentional here. His metaphor is so specific. If, if you're sick, if you get stricken with the flu or strep throat, is that your fault? I mean, do people stand outside cancer wards saying God hates people with cancer? Like, like blaming people who get sick, right? No, no, no. See, this shouldn't be a shaming thing for us, even though we use that word in a shaming way. For Jesus, it's not intended to be that way at all. If you're sick, it's not usually your fault that you get sick. And yet it's a reality you have to deal with. And see, I, th- I think in culture, what's, what's happening for us is as we push back on this idea that we're sick because we don't want to be shamed for it and we shouldn't, Here's what we lose. If if we're just saying, hey, you know what? I'm not sick. I'm just different. What we lose is we lose the value, the power of unconditional acceptance. Because if we're all just fine, if we're just different, then it just only makes sense that you should accept me. It's not unconditional anymore. It's just acceptance because because I'm fine. See, what Jesus offers us, what Jesus offered Matthew, what he came to offer the world is so much more powerful than that. See, what Jesus offers us is, is he looks, and he looks at people like me, and he says, he says Dion, you are, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I can see that you're also sick. There are parts of you that have gotten broken, and that wasn't my plan for you, but, but, but that's where you are right now. You, you've gotten sick, you're sick, you're broken. But that's okay, that's okay, because I love you, and I'm not afraid of sick people. I'm not coming in wearing a mask. I'm willing to embrace you, and I love you. And, and my love, in fact, is the medicine you need. I I am your healing. I came to find people just like you, so you don't have to feel bad about being sick. You're the very reason I came. You're, You're a perfect candidate for my love. And and if you just let me love you and and experience fellowship with me, you'll begin to find healing. The healing that you need. See for me that that's way more powerful and forcing someone to accept me and, and just by insisting that I'm, I'm okay and, and trying to argue the point. Uh, for 10 years in my marriage to Jocelyn, I believed that the key to keeping her love was by showing her, proving to her how great I am. And uh, yeah, I was kind of deluded for a long time, but but right, you, you know what that's like if you've ever been in a relationship. At the beginning, you, you, really, you really want to put a good foot forward. And not only that, you start to believe that if you stop being so great, the other person's love might dry up. And you know, sometimes that happens. And I think after about a, a decade of, of marriage, um, that became harder to do, to, to always put forward my great side. And more and more of my sickness started leaking out in a way that was just, just so obvious. And I can't tell you how terrifying that was and, and still is for me. Because in my mind, I think, if, if she sees that I'm not great, as great as maybe the man that she thought she married, then how could she possibly love me? 
And after a few years of tension, and uh, probably for the last five, seven, eight years, um, here's what I've discovered, that I married a very compassionate and merciful woman. And, and I've discovered, I've discovered that it's better to be loved, it's richer, it's, it's more healing to be loved when everyone acknowledges and can see how sick you are. It's better to be loved that way than to be loved pretending that you're greater than you really are. It's so healing. It's so life transforming. See, most of our world has settled for something different. They've settled for earned acceptance. You have too. And earned acceptance is this idea that I can be acceptable if I act the right way, dress the right way, drive the right thing, get the right job, live in the right neighborhood, have the right friends, go to the right school, get the right degree. Even in faith, we've settled. We have settled for an earned acceptance, which I may not be perfect, but at least I try, at least I'm better than some people. I, I, I've, I've, I've repented of some of those things in my life. I said, I'm sorry, at least, at least that should count for something, or, or I'm reading my Bible, or I'm coming to church, at least, at least. There's some reason that, that I should have acceptance. We've settled for earned acceptance. When Jesus doesn't want us to live this way, he wants us to know unconditional acceptance. This is why he came. And I'll tell you, this is so much more life-changing and transformative. This is who Jesus is. Not that we have to earn our acceptance, that we can find it in him unconditionally. That's what we were created for. That's why he came. See, no one in our world is doing this. No one in our world is doing this unconditional acceptance thing. People talk about it all the time, but no one is actually doing it. Liberals talk about it, but they're not doing it. Conservatives have just given up even talking about it because it seems too liberal, right? And, uh, and, 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 Religious people aren't doing it, and atheists aren't doing it, and the new atheists aren't doing this. No one in our world is actually doing this. And that's what made Jesus so different, is that no one in his world was doing it either, except he came onto the scene, and, and he showed how you can embrace people, and you can invite them into table fellowship, even though you don't agree with them. And that's okay. But you can embrace them and love them. See, if, if we can have the courage to do this too as a church. And I'll tell you, it takes courage because the moment you start doing this, again, jaws, the Pharisees come around, right? And they start to go, what are you guys doing? That's so unfaithful. You've gone off the rails and, and they bring up their proof text and they show you why you're doing the wrong thing and, and, and they'll critique you and they'll judge you and they'll make you feel like you're being unfaithful or you're somehow watering down or you're not taking a stand. Or... But if we have the courage to to just live like Jesus and to embrace people the way Jesus did without all the strings attached, without all the preconditions, if we're willing to do this, to be a church where imperfect people can, can come along with the rest of us imperfect people and together we can move toward wholeness together. It doesn't matter where you're from or you can't say, hey, you're too imperfect for this tribe. We just say, no, no, no. Imperfect people are welcome here. If, if we can do this, then we'll be the only ones doing it. And man, will we shine. Then we will stand out. Let me pray. Father in heaven, give us courage to live like Jesus. Give us courage first in our own lives to acknowledge our, our sickness and to find the unconditional acceptance that Jesus offers. And then, Father, give us the courage 
to, to truly live like Jesus and to embrace people, even though we don't fully agree with them or even understand them, just to embrace people with, with his healing, transforming love. We ask this in Jesus. Amen. Uh, I think if you struggle with this, and you know, I do. I, I like sacrifice over mercy. Mercy's hard for me sometimes. I, I know the best antidote for that is to acknowledge, to sit and acknowledge my own brokenness. And so for a moment, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to sit and get real honest before God. Uh, and if you can't see it, ask God to show you the places in your life where you're still broken, where you're sick and in need of healing. And just open yourself up to God, not fearing that he's gonna push you away or turn you away. Uh, his love for you is bigger than that. But uh, by coming clean, that's a way that I think your heart can be made tender and you can realize the power of mercy in your own life, but not just in your life, in the lives of others. So take a minute, confess. People used to teach that before you could come forward and receive communion, and I guess shouldn't say used to, people still teach this all over the place, that, uh, that you got to make yourself right. You got to make yourself pure. You got to confess and be absolved and be made holy before you're worthy of coming forward and receiving this. And, and, and you know, that teaching couldn't be more wrong. It's right for us to acknowledge ourselves only so that we can understand the mercy that's being offered to us here. Because in this meal, what Jesus does is, is he looks at people who are sick and broken. And man, I, I, hope, I hope today, if nothing else, you can just get in touch and be honest about your own sickness and your own brokenness. Because you're not alone in that. We all have it. But man, you, you've got to own that for yourself. And you see, in this meal, what Jesus does is he invites people who are sick and broken to the table, to table fellowship. And he says, come sit with me. Come dine with me. Come and experience depth and closeness and belonging with me. Because I'm the doctor who came not for healthy people, but for sick people. And I'm all about mercy. And so uh, if you've got this idea in your head that somehow you have, to, you have to be worthy of coming forward and receiving this, you couldn't be more wrong. This meal, this table is set for unworthy people, for sinful people. People are fearfully and wonderfully made, yeah. But people who acknowledge that they, they need healing, they need the acceptance that only God can give. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The table is set and ready. Welcome to the Lord's table.